Hey, everybody coming in. If you remember, um, Harpreet is having some family times, so I'm guest hosting for him today. Um, so we'll just wait a minute, see who else is going to show up here. Um, hopefully we'll get a good group together so we can actually have some discussion. I've never been um, the host of a Zoom meeting before either, so that's another new experience for me. Are you feeling well prepared? Um, I mean, no, but I don't know. I, I feel as prepared as I'm going to be, and then we'll just see where the the afternoon takes us here. Yeah, new experiences are good. Go with the flow. It yeah. Be, it should be good. Anybody have any cool things that happened this week? Anything going on? I mean, I've, I've got one I can throw out there. Um, uh, in the news today, there's been a lot of... Um, talk about uh, Barack Obama, former president or, or president, um, Barack Obama saying that he believes in uh, UFOs. And I think there's also been uh, video footage released recently by the Pentagon or some other form of, of government over there um, that previously hadn't been shown of unidentified flying, I mean, not necessarily alien craft, but unidentified flying objects um, taken from um, military aircraft. So interested to know, have any of you guys seen that or have heard of this um, from stateside? That was news to me just now when you said it, but I don't know anybody else. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been following this for, what has it been, two years. This has been in and out of the news for about two years where they trickle released uh, Trump did something. I, I can't remember what he did. He signed some sort of order or allowed the release of some sort of documentation and as part of that, like this whole dump of UFO videos showed up out of nowhere. And it was basically overnight that the Pentagon just went, yeah, so UFOs. Um, yeah, UFOs. <laughs> Ever since then, it's just been getting stranger and stranger because now all of these pilots are talking about, yeah, UFOs, seen them. What are they? No clue. Seen any aliens? Nope. Mm. But you've seen UFOs. Yep. <laughs> That's really been the official line. And I think if they actually explained it, the story would go away pretty quickly. But the fact that no one's really given a good, this is what's actually going on explanation. It's kind of hung out there where it's really difficult to figure out. I mean, okay, so there's some stuff that does some incredibly interesting aerial maneuvers. And and I think that's where it's interesting is what everyone's been filling in the blanks for and. Yeah, exactly. So like from a, from a data analysis or data science perspective, there's, there's huge gaps in the data there. And you want to go away and fill those gaps to make a judgment and not just kind of throw a whole host of what ifs in there and see what sticks, which is... I think what a lot of the, the public do, especially when they start getting excited about, you know, aliens and, and all this kind of stuff, then we'll see see how it transpires. I, I did hear someone say that there may be um, a further release in uh, a month or two of reports about the uh, the video evidence. So it'll be interesting to see what comes. Um, okay, so I'm just going to officially start here. Hi, everybody. Um, if you remember, Harpreet said that he was going to be out of town. He's enjoying some time with his family. Um, and I know that I don't quite have a voice that's the embodiment of smooth jazz the way that he does, but I will be your guest host today. So if anybody has any questions or anything, feel free to drop it in the chat. We were just now discussing about Obama and UFOs. If anybody knows, has heard about this story, um, then by all means, we can talk about it if you want. Uh, but otherwise, just you know, let me know how it's, what you want to talk about and I can put it in the queue or I can also throw out a question. I've got a question of my own if anybody wants to talk about that. So just, yeah, let me know. So I, th I think I missed the beginning of the conversation. What was said here about the UFOs? Like, is it something, uh, I'm sorry for budgeting in here. Is this something that you guys really believe in or it doesn't make sense. Uh, like it, it was, it was my comment first, Greg, and it was basically, you know, so I'm, I'm from London, the UK, and there's been uh, a reasonable amount of media coverage here uh, that um, President Barack Obama has recently said he believes in um, UFOs, perhaps aliens. I didn't hear it firsthand. I've just heard it a, a third party. Uh, but also there's been quite a lot of video evidence released by the Pentagon in recent months of um, purported UFOs. So it's just the two of those things kind of coincide. And I'm interested from a UK perspective to know if this is making big media over in the US. Mm, yeah. For, from The way I usually think about this is uh, how come the videos aren't 
ever so clear to 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 to, to describe the flying vehicles or even you know exploring something like that as true you know what would be i guess what would be the purpose i guess there are so many questions i don't think we can answer here but i'm i'm just uh one of those skeptics who are, who's looking to to see if it's true or not but if it's true i'm curious to know more it's just uh just wanted to see what you guys thought about this it's just it's one of those that i am saying okay uh that means they have enough energy to travel here if they spent that much energy to come explore are they exploring for fun or are they exploring for survival you know all these things and you know uh, it's 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 a fun subject so thanks for bringing it up thanks for uh, catching me up to speed all right well we do have a question in the queue uh from james so james if you want to go ahead sure hi everyone um thanks for hosting this all um and thanks Finn specifically, I've, I've been, I saw your stuff at the Data Science Guild conference and I've been seeing your stuff on LinkedIn and it's been really be helpful, but uh, I'm new to the Data Science Guild. I just finished the bootcamp um, and I'm kind of wondering how, sh- how do you guys think I should be structuring my week and how do you guys structure your week when you're kind of planning it out ahead of time? How much time do you plan for like planning and thinking? How much is just straight, let's just make some stuff work? How much is cooperating with other people to see what their insights are and what, um, what you should be planning for the future kind of? Russell, go for it. It's it's almost kind of a philosophical question. You know, how much time do you want to spend planning time to plan, I guess? You know, so I I try to have probably in my schedule uh, a butter zone of about uh, no more than 60% fixed things that I know what I'm doing and, and then leave the rest of the time to either have as focus time or um, serendipitous time for things that kind of crop up through the week. Uh, and that 60%, that's kind of a, a max. I prefer to have it less than that. So I don't like to allow my schedule to, to fill up with too much stuff. Um, but that stuff that's filled up with fixed things, I allow that to be kind of all different types of stuff, you know, uh, working on something that's fixed or having a meeting uh, that, that we need to go to. But I'm fairly certain you could ask 100 people and get 100 different answers on this. You know, I don't think there's any one golden rule um, it's probably best to try a few different systems and see what works best for you. But don't just don't match yourself out. Allow time to have some time for yourself. The focus time is really important. Uh, and don't get close to feeling burnt out. If you're feeling close to getting burnt out, scale back before you feel burnt out. Because, you know, once you get there, it's difficult to deal with. Greg, have you is that got okay some or thoughts? a little bit too generic? Yeah, I mean, like, it is a pretty broad question, right? And it's really going to change on workflow and, like, industries and, like, what tasks you're working on at a specific time. So um, I, I feel like this group's probably pretty good at pretty broad questions, though, So, or from what I've seen. In, seen. So I just kind of thought what I'd like to see what your thoughts are, really. I see Antonio raise his hand. Antonio, you're yeah, I can. Yeah. I can. I can chime in. I'm, I'm driving actually, but I actually, I wanted to share that I recently saw something and I don't know if Jeff Bezos actually does it, but I've been trying it out. It says when he's planning for a project, if you have 70% of the information, then you are, then he kind of starts this project because he says, if you wait to have 100% of the information, whatever that project is, you're never going to get there. So I've actually been trying that out and that's been kind of working because uh, at some points I used to be like, well, I need to talk to just a couple more people and maybe we'll get all of the information and you'll never get to 100%. And that kind of stalls a lot of things. So right now for the past three or four weeks, I've been trying that out. If I have 70% of the information, which of course is an estimate, if I feel like I'm 70% ready, then I just go in for the project. So that's some thought that I came across and hopefully that helps. That makes sense. Um, I, 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 I can see that too when I, when I think about the, the projects that I'm that I'm working on is that and, and what you mean by 70% of the information Antonio, the way I look at it is more like 70% of the information about the solution, right? Because the problem, though, I need more than 70% of whether that problem is the right problem I need to work on. Right. Uh, I need to be sure that, you know, the data that I pull is sound and vetted as tr- source of truth for, you know, um, killing any false assumptions or uh, making sure that the, 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 the need, there is a need to fix an issue. Once I go there, then the solution that I come up with, you know, that's where, to me, I, I look at the 70%. So, um I, I, I like to look at it in terms of options, right? So are we making a one-way door decision where once we make that decision to implement the solution, 
you're stuck forever with that solution and you have to uh, eat up the cost of that implementation or, or, or that structure. Uh, and, and it's very expensive to come out of it. So it's always good to leave room for two-way door type decisions uh, when you're implementing those solutions. So uh, I don't know if I'm answering that question, James, but because you, you're alluding to how much effort you should spend on uh, planning and things like that. But I'm, I'm uh, telling you in terms of uh, coming in from a project management perspective, uh, what would be the best strategy to, to, to go about a project um, and how to think um, long-term uh, for it too. So. Right, yeah. I, I also think with uh, what you're saying, Greg, it's like in terms of I would ask like for ML ops or something and I, I would ask people, okay, is this like, is this the flow that has to be it? And nobody like answers unless you have a plan. So sometimes I just put thing in, I would put an email, right? Hey, step one is this, step two is this, step three is this. Is this correct? And when you put something in front of them, all of a sudden, everybody has an opinion. So sometimes like if I'm fairly certain something might work, I just put it out there and wait for the experts because the way my role is, I'm kind of like in a strategy role where I'm trying to coordinate between different groups, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not like an ML engineer expert, nowhere near that. So I would put something out there and all of a sudden, all of the ML engineers, once I said something, they're like, no, you're wrong. We should be doing it this way. I'm like, yeah. okay, you can tell me this yesterday, but now when I said you're correcting me so i'm okay that's with true. that though, as long as we come up with a solution that's true it's, it's been an effective way to to get people to move is that you propose <laughs> or even prevent present the the options uh and then you let people uh decide okay which is the best and it's always good to just propose a solution assuming certain conditions so it could be uh i assume based on what um re agreed on if we move forward with option a this is the expected output unless you think option b is better you let me know what do you right, think exactly. so uh it's always a good technique to get people to move and tell you you're wrong about option a i prefer option c and here it is and things like that so uh people are funny sometimes yeah and you need to be comfortable with being wrong i think that's very important yeah that's sure uh Archer, you had a good comment uh, in the chat. Do you want to chime in? Uh, sure, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's like Newton's laws of energy. You need to spend some energy, get the ball moving, get the conversation going. And once the conversation starts, then uh, it's a lot easier to have people... Sorry, I'm clicking right now. A lot easier to get it uh, going. Uh, I'm a teacher, so I know that if I want to start a conversation, you got to get at least one kid to start talking about it. And other kids mm -hmm. can always just top on and chime in afterwards. But if, you know, no one says anything, it's silent for like 5, 10, 15 minutes. You got to get the, you know, something. And then it's easy from there. That makes sense. Okay, that's great. Anybody else have any thoughts for James on this topic? All right. Well, Actually, oh, Ben, go ahead. Yeah, I'll roll something in. Because um, your original question was how much time should you spend on planning? How much time should you spend on working? How much... And you're just talking generally in your week, how to plan it out, how to scope it out and and box time, right? Yeah, that was a little bit more what I was what I was going for. But I mean, everyone's comments are so great. <laughs> yeah, because uh, what I've watched people do, and I'm starting to kind of put this into a number, 80-20 rule, everybody likes that. When you're first starting out in your career, 80% of your time is going to be these, and 20% of your time is going to be this, because you have to use these really to get the experience to use this. And you want to have a point where you know, you say, okay, five years from now, I want to be 50-50. And if you're not really hardcore engineering, you know, that might be maybe a ways out. You might spend more time as an engineer or an ML engineer, really focused on the product, the technology, building, creating, and not so much the person who's architecting, thinking, visioning, directing, and so on. But you may want to be more into the strategy side. You may want to migrate more towards a leadership role. You may, And then so that's your, okay, I want to drag my 50-50 forward. You know, I want to be 50-50 in about four years or five years, or maybe you want to be 50-50 in 10 years. But you have to realize at some point, your career is going to have to get to that 50-50 point. And at some point, it's going to have to go 80, you know, 20-80. So now you are doing 20% this, 80% this, because there's only so many senior roles where you're doing very, very senior work with these 80% of the time. There's very, very small number of just high end, all technical, no, no real planning. And so that's the way I would say schedule your day now, you know, with the understanding of this is where you are 
and look forward career-wise and start asking yourself, okay, when do I want to get to 50-50? Was that helpful, James? Good good information? Yeah, that's, that's great information. Okay, well, Mark put a question in the chat, so... Why don't you go for it, Mark? Yeah, it's just a follow up on, on Ben's comment of like, you know, what does career growth look like when you really enjoy using these? Um, you know, is it like if you want to grow in your career, you have to move towards that strategic role? Um, or is it one of those things where like, you know, you, you use your hands outside of work kinds of side projects for fun to stay sharp, but then like driving kind of value, you really have to be that strategic side. I can try to answer that one about how it is in my company. So I work for Verizon, um, AI and data organization, it's called. And what used to happen was, right, you you reach up to a certain point when you're a coder and basically you max out and they basically say, if you want more money, more senior role, you have to go into management. And I, I've seen it personally. We're the best, best coder I have seen. He reached a certain point really quickly in his career. And they say you have to go into management, but he never really wanted to do that. But he did it anyways, because he wanted to obviously make more money for his family. And his work started to suffer a lot because he didn't enjoy, he wanted to be sitting by himself in the corner, just doing his work, doing his project. He was doing kind of like architecture thing. And what he ended up just doing was leaving. And he ended up going to Microsoft and is doing really great there as like a individual contributor. And I think companies are starting to see that. And now Verizon has a thing where you could be as high up as a director, but you don't have any reports to you. I think they're calling them like fellows, associate fellowship or something like that, where you have some really good data engineers who have been 20, 30 years in the industry, really know what they're doing and talking about, but they're in that point of their career where they don't want to manage people. So those roles are starting to open up in my company, and I've seen a few other companies as well, but there's definitely not enough of them. I think give it five to 10 years and you should be able to be like a coder where you're an engineer or an architect or even a data scientist and use just coding. But um, until now, it, it's been it's been a little tough and based on what I've seen. Um, it's, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm definitely, oh, Vin, go for it. I'm definitely no, interested no, to ahead. hear, just I, I am interested to hear of what this sort of looks like um, at other people's, you know, in other people's experience, companies you've worked for and stuff of what it looks like when you have a person who wants to just keep doing really technical things. Um, yeah, what, like, what does their career path look like? I'm, I'm interested in that, if anybody has thoughts on that. Yeah, like, uh, you know, what Antonio said is what a lot of companies have is they cap it a director. Like you're equivalent to a director with no direct reports. So that's actually really, really common. And they cap it a director, which I don't get. You can be way more valuable as an engineer than a lot of directors. And a lot of companies don't understand that. So you have to kind of come to the realization that there are most companies, you know, they get to principal staff. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of titles that are out there. Distinguished. I think that's Oracle's distinguished. And they, you get all these cool titles and you're basically like you're an individual contributor at the director level and then you're capped, you're maxed. And more times than not, companies spend as much time as they can trying to get rid of you or promote you. And so it, it becomes increasingly miserable as your life goes on. And that's a good majority of companies. On the other side, and this is what ended up happening to me sort of at a midpoint in my career, is I got connected up with a guy who was just basically a visionary. Like he would throw out ideas that were nuts. You know, he was that person that would say, hey, why don't we do, and you would just look at him like, you're, you're crazy. That's not, and I got hooked up with this guy and somebody funded one of his projects at the company that I was working with and said, Hey, who wants to work on this team? And I was like, all right, that's so dumb. I'll do it. If you're going to pay for it, I'll do it. And I spent three years working with him and we pushed out prototypes, did advanced R and D. It was the coolest development that I've ever done. And I didn't really get to advance very much career-wise, but like passion, love, enjoyed what I was building. Unreal. I mean, we built some things in the particular niche that we were in that, you know, five, six years later, people were starting to come around and copy because they had made a ton of cash 
you know, they weren't huge hits year one, year two, but year three to five, they started making enough money that everyone started looking at them and saying, okay, we need to copy this. And it was a lot of fun. And that, and a lot of companies find that person who's a visionary or an innovator and actually connect yourself with them and start making the stuff that everyone says you can't make. Because the first time you do that, it's addicting. And I got to say for satisfaction, you know, if you're this type person, oh, it's, it'll get that out of you because after about three years of just building stuff that nobody really wants until later on, like two years later, three years later, it gets kind of, it gets draining after a while to not get the credit until long afterwards. And then somebody else swoops in and takes credit, but it'll get that out of you. It'll get that passion kind of pushed into a good direction. So that's something to look for in your company is if there is that sort of program, you'll, you'll enjoy it. If that's really what you want to do. Just kind of like a follow-up question into is, is like, I see, like, I definitely see that component of like, are you get to this point, you're kind of capped at, at director, but like, I feel like a lot of us are type A, we're like really gunning, trying to grow consistently. And so at that point, like, does this make sense just to be like, screw the company culture kind of aspect and just go on your own? Because then I could be IC for whatever company and my my cap is just how much market capture I can get. Because um, <clears throat> I've seen that play a lot as well. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of similar things um, from a UK perspective as well. Uh, so the, the the director roles, I'm I'm seeing that a lot of organisations are becoming more of a pay grade rather than a, a description of the role you undertake. Uh, so that's moving as well. Uh, but I'm really interested in the description thing saying about using your hands. You know, uh, especially with the way technology is coming on now. So maybe in five or ten years' time, as uh, as NLP uh, increases and you know the ML field is advancing, might we be in a position where we're, we're using far less of these and just talking to our machines and instructing them on the type of uh, commands to run and 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 scripts to implement, and we'll actually type in far less. Is that something that we're going to have to get used to in the uh, in the near future, do you think? I, mean, I, I personally, I can see a world like that, but I think at, at the end of the day, I think you're still like an individual contributor because, you know, even though I'm not using my hands, I'm still, it's I'm solving puzzles. <laughs> that's, that's the thing that's like really addicting for me. And I don't want to solve people puzzles because those are really messy in ways I don't like. Could you describe, could you describe for me when you say using these, I, I, I just want to make sure I, I grasp it. I was just copying Vin. So I think Vin can probably better describe describe what describe that for me by that. I just want to make sure what do we mean by when we use these these you're building you're making you're making it real there's somebody else that's doing this and saying build and this is what it's going to look like and the more senior you get the more you're directing what these are going to do at an architectural level and an engineering level you know at your very beginning it's just you doing this and there's almost like there's a puppet master pulling your hands up and down. But as you get more and more senior, uh, you know, the roles that we're talking about where the distinguished staff and the, uh, you know, that director level individual contributor, you're an architect, but your architecture is really, you know, prototyped by these right here. You're yeah. building things that are so forward. And, you know, especially in the hardware world, this happens a lot in the hardware world where you are legitimately hands-on doing proof of concepts of stuff that hasn't been built before. And from a software development standpoint, you're building in ways that are more efficient, that take advantage of something that just came out. But yes, you're definitely using your head, but you're the one making it real because nobody else can see the connection between how it's built and your vision. Like you see it and you make it happen because you couldn't get anybody else on the same page to actually yeah. build it until you've got certain core capabilities and functionality built yourself. And then you can bring in a whole bunch of other people who go, oh, okay, so you need me to do this and this and this. And then they start seeing the vision and they understand they're able to implement once you've simplified some of the more complex problems. And so that's what I mean by. Totally get it. That makes sense. I guess I guess it, uh, that makes me think about something that I've observed uh, as a trend across industries is that typically as humans, we reward the things that come from here that transforms the way we live more than the physical work. So when I see this, I see physical. So the example that I can take is um, I'm pretty sure you're paying an architect more money than the person actually putting the blocks together to build the building, which is a physical work. So I think I can maybe I can use that analogy. And I'm wondering if it's also applying here too, where 
at some point you'll find that you working more on this to build things will you'll hit a plateau where you're not allowing yourself enough time to think about future transformation or you're not allowing yourself to think about impact on the many this is where you get you end up getting stuck where you have to move to a point where you become more of a future thinker future transformer and that's unfortunately society rewards those folks more so and it's okay because it's 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 up to what you want to do with your career to Vince's point if you're somebody who feels fulfilled by using this go for it there's really no right or wrong it's really what you want to do and i think wherever you choose to be you're going to have a headache anyway. Do you want to be stressed at the top by leveraging this and you're not getting results? Can you think about the first person who made a promise or self-driving vehicles that says next year we'll be good to go? And then government says is that so? Is that so? So can you imagine that? So uh or even Elon Musk that says if I return this, I'm going to get paid that amount. What if it didn't? right so that's a lot of stress do you want that stress for your life uh so i think that's that's the way i see it so hopefully I, i'm helping i think those two summaries there from from yourself greg and, and Vin were really astute and from my perspective I, I think i i think of the hands as the tool of the mind right the way through so from being right at the coal face which is you know kind of the front line people either building something physical or coding whatever it is you've got that direct connection from your mind to your hands so there's very little latency you know what you think you can pretty much do so long as you have the skills to do as you do move up though so long as you've got good synergy with the team that you're working with essentially their hands become an extension of your hands. So as so long as you can keep that synergy working there and working positively, it can be a positive step so long as that's the direction in which you want to go. I think. So we actually have um, a bit of a follow-up question on this for Arthur. So go ahead and uh, ask. Ask away. Okay, thank you. So, uh, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, you know, all there's all these kinds of issues where how do you make sure that you... Uh, give people what they want to help them, you know, strive to be better and not have to worry about like, well, do I have to quit what I love doing to get paid more? And, you know, it's if it's a company culture thing, uh, do you guys have any ideas for how can you structure a company's culture to, you know, kind of alleviate or reduce the kind of pressure or friction that people have of deciding, do I keep doing what I'm good at and what I love or do I take more money? Is there a way to kind of structure it or change things around to, you know, help that kind of situation? You guys have any ideas? I can speak from my current company. We just, uh, we're a startup and we just, after four years, are just implementing levels right now um, and, and kind of career track. So it's interesting to kind of see that being, that culture being developed right now. Um, something interesting that my manager did was very intentional about our team was having a, uh, a manager track, an analytics track, and then a product building track. Um, and I, as you notice, like, it does cap out a director. There's no, <laughs> there's no reason for that. But something that's really interesting, though, that I've noticed is with the culture is that as I go up in those levels and, I, and she kind of created this rubric, she's awesome. She has this IO psychology background. So she like connects that to like her data science background to create this really great rubric. I told her she needs to go present at a, at a conference for this, but the, the need to go up to level is business impact. Um, and like that moving that needle forward. So I've talked, I talked to Greg a bit and then, and also this overall group about like how to drive that business impact. And what I've noticed is that um, as I drive for the business impact, I can't just rush and build things quickly. <laughs> I'll waste a lot of time and also requires me to get a lot of buy-in fact-finding. And I'm spending a lot of my time doing that before I build something. And so even though like culture-wise, I know I can grow in the company without having direct reports, I'm still being forced to do this mental component. Um, and so I don't know if that's necessarily a culture thing, but maybe it's more so just a necessity as like, as you have more impact and that impact's needed to, to level up. Um, and so I guess like a, a better question is like, you know, is to level up is business impact needed? That's an open-ended question. And that's more so like a crazy idea. Like, like how do we define impact for, for business? And, you know, does growth have to be tied to like business impact itself? Um, I know that was kind of rambly, but that's like trying to give you a snapshot of like a company figuring that out right now. Antonio, do you have thoughts you unmuted um, yourself? Yeah, so I was, 
I was on a data-driven NYC. I don't know if you guys follow that one. And it was with the VP of AI or something at, at Facebook. And I, I asked that exact same question. And I think what his answer was, was, was what I agree with. And he basically said, you have to get technical people in position of power, basically. Because if you looked in the past, if you looked at most CEOs, they had that kind of finance background. So they were always like leading people and you were management and you were climbing the ladder. But if you look at now, uh, if you look at like Elon Musk, you look at the guys at Google, you look at the Microsoft CEO, they were technical guys. So they already have that culture in the background. So now when they're implementing these things, they, they understand how important it is to be technical. So I think, and same thing at, at Verizon, once these technical guys start becoming like executives and they can influence how people are getting compensated, how people are getting hired, then you start seeing being technical people being more appreciated and saying like, okay, we don't want to cap you out. We're going to, we understand that, okay, you're not necessarily, you're not leading people, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the same impact as the, somebody who's leading 20 people. Because, right, if you're that good of an engineer or a data scientist, and Vin said this, and so does Mark, you can be a data scientist and have a lot more uh, impact than a director who has 20 reports. Just because you're a director with reports, it doesn't mean you're really doing that much. Sometimes, you know, people are just great that work for you. So I think it's important for data people and for technical people to become executives. And I think over time, that will kind of work itself out. Anybody else have anything they want to add to this topic? I think when you talk about culture, you're talking about what the company values most. And if the company understands its business model, then it's got a good connection to a value stream. And engineering is part of that value stream in one way, shape, or form. And so a company that's really connected with a technology first or product first business model and understands the role of engineering in that value stream, they're going to end up rewarding their engineers because if they don't, their value stream suffers. And so when you have mature companies, they understand that from end to end. And even when you don't get a technical uh, CEO or, or really technical focused people at the top, when your senior leadership is bought in on that value stream concept and they've been, you know, it's been proven to them to the point where they actually believe in it, not, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give the lip service to it. But once they believe in it, then you start seeing salaries and compensation going up because they understand, you know, I can kneecap myself by losing one person. And a lot of companies are, but it's somebody, I can't remember who said this, but most companies are three IT or technical contributors away from ruin. Like three people leave and you can undo two or three years worth of forward progress with three people. I can't remember who said that, but when, yeah, when the business understands that, then you start seeing engineers getting compensated for their contributions. And a company that I worked with actually had a almost like royalties. You would work on a project, it would hit, it would make its quota of cash, you know, and it had to make at least what it was projected to make. And as soon as it capped over that, you started getting some of that money back. And there were people making six, seven figures as software developers because they made one project that was doing nine figures a year. And everybody wanted to be on the bleeding edge projects because there were these two people who were basically lottery winners. And you start seeing really intelligent compensation packages when the business realizes how much cash can come out of you know, a team of four or five people that can end to end build a solution that they've talked the business into building in the first place and cash shows up truck just shows up, dumps cash off. And that's, like I said, it's, it's, that's the culture is value focused, revenue focused, really understanding that value stream and seeing where engineering fits in it. Greg, are you going to talk about what you posted in the chat? Yeah, this is just a prioritization piece. So I think Anything you venture in, you're, you'll find noise coming your way. Uh, and to, to, to really understand how get rid of some of that noise, I, I, I've particularly used the Eisenhower matrix. Um, it's, I find it super useful to kind of um, figure out what are the what are the quadrants I need to to work on, uh, which ones I need to declutter, and and it takes you know, conversation with others as well, especially you know the quadrant four where you need to declutter. This is where you would align with your team. 
that you know this is not something that moves the needle or is, is even uh, uh, necessary for for your department. It's it's not part of your goal, the the, the department goal or something like that. Uh, and then you know if you're in a position of management, you can delegate some as well. Uh, those are the urgent and important. And then uh, for me, I like to stay around uh, quadrant number two uh, because this is the transformational ones uh, that you know will most likely move the needle. Another thing that I like to think about too is if I'm working on a project today, and this is more of a cultural thing, the things that I'm working on today in terms of projects or things that we talked about a year, two years ago, that we decided that this will be a piece of transformational journey for us. And it will happen within the next one to three years. So when it happens, whatever is happening today has already been planned on. And it's been an execution phase right now. So that's why we need to keep a rolling three-year plan to continue to move towards the future. But at the same time, you have those noise coming in, those urgent things coming in, that where you have to kill fires, tell somebody to do this on your behalf, or uh, even do it yourself that removes you from that future planning uh, type thing. So again, these future planning type things are the ones that may or may not open some valve for more revenue uh, uh, or uh, major cost savings for the organization. So in other words, you have to be able to think in multiple timelines, the now or the current processes that you're going through, are they working properly? Do they need any improvements? And what quick actions can I take to improve these? And then the one to five years, what are the things that we can plan on uh, uh, You know, uh, transforming, working on in terms of long-term projects that can transform the department or the company to the next level? And those are the things that you can start uh, getting uh, you know, alignment from the business on because you've identified that there are blockers, there are needs, there are uh, uh, issues that prevent the company from moving in that direction. And you're thinking about the solutions for those uh, within the next five years. That's, I absolutely love seeing this and I love what you're talking about. And it was really reminding me of how I used to have a boss who could not prioritize things like at all. We would have big brainstorming sessions where we would sit around and just like, okay, no bad ideas, write everything down, you know? And then, um, and then we, it would come time to be like, all right, uh, what are the things we want to work on or do or whatever? And then he would just label everything as a one. Like, and then we'd have like 20 items that were one. And then we'd sit there and be like, uh, we can't have everything be a one. Like we need one thing to actually be one. And so then he would start doing one A, one B, but then even in one A, you would still have things like he could only narrow it down to like, you know, seven different things at minimum. And it was the most absurd thing and I bet you can guess how much work we ever got done and how productive we ever were because we never could like focus and actually figure out what we were supposed to be doing um anyway sort of if anybody has any thoughts on this uh go ahead but I also have a question I wanted to ask about what we were talking about before Russell did you have something you wanted to say you yeah I just, I just had a quick just had okay. a quick point to come back go in ahead. on culture. So um, as uh, Antonio was saying, you know, if you get a technical person up at the executive level, then you can have impact. And the other side of that really is, you know, if you're not at an executive or C-suite level, it's very, very difficult to implement any change to culture. You know, culture is, it's almost a, a fallacy in some areas. It's what the company says it is in a lot of cases, rather than what the company does. You know, it's 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 talk that's talked rather than walk that's walked. Um, there's some good dynamic companies that really do walk the walk, but often culture is you know what you want the company to. Or it's what the company wants it to be perceived as, rather than what it actually puts into practice. Um, so unless you are at those higher echelons of the corporate ladder very very difficult i think to have an effect on company culture yeah sorry was that a, was that a bit too negative oh no i actually I, really agree I, with you i but, just see stunned faces um anyway but i i do have i thought that was great i actually kind of agree with you if anybody has any thoughts on that feel free to jump in mark you um, like you were thinking I, about it 
go ahead. I, I, I do have thoughts because it's funny because like at the company I work at, like our product is specifically trying to change culture within a whole, whole company. Um, and what's interesting is that like through our data, we're actually able to see, see like a treatment effect to see like after we inter- implement our product at this date, there is this change, right? And like kind of the term, if you are interested, it's called action management. That's kind of like the brand we're, we're trying to go around. But what's interesting is that we have these HR executives who, you know, normally it's like, we'll send out a survey and get a feeling for everyone. And then uh, it will happen every six months or one year. And then we'll make this giant decree of like, the culture has changed because we read what you said. And obviously that doesn't happen. And so something that's really interesting is um, when you want, when you want to change the culture um, for our products specifically use nudges where we send these bite-sized interventions um, throughout the course of six months to nudge you towards behaviors. So like um, next time you have a meeting, you know, um, ask your colleagues what are the three top things you think should be prioritized, right? Um, and then the your colleagues will your your I your uh, direct reports will say, hey, think of three things that you want you want to prioritize and talk about the meeting, right? So it's like these dual kind of things. Um, but the interesting node about that is that you specifically have to target managers um, to to make those changes. So if you actually want to implement culture change, not only do you have to be, say at the top, you have to be able to implement it via the managers and ensure that direct reports see that change. Um, so just just in, from my current work and seeing this data all the time, both at like Fortune 500 companies and small companies, like this interesting space called action management is actually where people are people are, are agreeing with what you said, like, really, you can't control culture unless you're at the top and even then, like, whatever. Um, but there are sort of like products and, and ways to which people are starting to shift out within a company. Um. That's really interesting. I feel like you, Mark, have a very specific uh, special view on that sort of thing because of the nature of homo and everything. Um, I wanted to ask a question kind of going back to what we were talking about before when we were talking about using your hands and things like that. Um, Just we were mentioning this idea of like director level and staff and stuff like that. And I suppose that I could Google this, but for interest's sake, um, I just hear like the idea of a staff engineer or staff engineers, like a staff data scientist a lot. Like what, what is that? Like somebody help me understand kind of this nuance between some of these different roles of what, like what staff really means versus if you are a director with no reports. Yeah. Anybody? Yeah, no, sorry. I was old man does not use the mute button today. Um, the like staff distinguished principle. Um, like I said, there's a bunch of these cool titles that are out there. And in half the companies, it means we had to put the golden handcuffs on this person because they're the only one who knows how this one thing is engineered and architected. And if they leave, we're over. And that's, you know, there's a there there's a career path for someone who has built something so complex and so essential to a business that they cannot be fired. And you see people like this in finance everywhere where they built something back in the 90s or the 80s and they're still there collecting a very large salary because they're the only ones who understand it. So that's sort of one path. And when you see people who have that job title, just understand that a lot of them got there because they're it. If they leave, the company's in a lot of trouble and they won't train anyone. So in some cases, it's a negative connotation. You know, there are this cool title is yes, they're intelligent, great people, but they're also gatekeepers and we'd be better off without them. We'd be better off if we kind of moved them along. The other side is really somebody who can implement something nobody else can. And there's a lot of projects that'll come up where you just need one person who can just, you know, brute force, spend a week or two solving the problem and just figure it out. And that's the most effective and efficient way. And so you'll get these people who are distinguished because they can do that from a problem solving standpoint. And typically they're also really bad at teaching other people what they know. And so, you know, they've never progressed because they don't know how to teach people to do what they did. You know, during that three-year stint in my career, I knew what I needed to do, but I was a horrible teacher. They kept trying to get me to train somebody to help me and I couldn't do it. I I just, I had no idea how to do it. No one had taught me how to teach a process before. All they'd ever taught me how to do is teach technical skills to people. And so you've got another group who are really great engineers, but really horrible teachers. 
And so, you know, when you see these job titles, they're awesome. When you get to that level, it's amazing. And if you're a problem solver, you know, it's fun, it's enjoyable, it's what you want to do, but it's not necessarily always a great thing. I mean, we, we glorify amazing engineers and I'm kind of answering it from the perspective of, well, here's the reality of what it's like to be one of these people. And you're not always, you're not always in the best company and you yourself are typically in that role because you haven't learned some lesson that would allow you to be a multiplier where your capabilities would multiply all the people that reported into you or all the people that were mentored by you. And so that's typically why you end up in these very, very, very distinguished roles. Would you say that companies are sometimes reluctant to give that title to people then? It's the salary because it's, I don't think people, like, I almost want to take a survey. Like, what do you think the highest paid data scientist gets? And when I tell you the highest paid data scientist I've ever seen, it's going to disturb you because then that's why companies don't want to hand this out because with it, you've basically recognized that the person's, you know, you can't get rid of this person. This person is essential to your core business. And that's why you've promoted them this far and paid them this much in bigger companies like in Intel's and IBM's. These people are everywhere because they have that core knowledge that, you know, nobody else has. And so companies don't want to promote you to that level because they want to teach you how to be a multiplier rather than a silo individual contributor. Because that's where you become more valuable is when you teach more and more people how it is that you do these amazing things and you learn to teach processes. So they're, they're reluctant to promote you to that level unless they actually need you because there's some downsides to it. And you can get pretty complacent in a role where you get paid that much just to know what you know now. Okay. Well, now you got to tell us the salary. I, I want to see some guesses first. I want to see some guesses and I'll tell you the highest paid data scientist I've ever seen. I'm going to total compensation. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, is this total compensation or just base total salary? Comp. No, total comp. Oh, 1.5 mil. <laughs> 7 million. Okay. No, not. <laughs> okay. Good. No. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Good. <laughs> just over $2 million. It was at a hedge fund, just over 2 million. It was nuts. I, yeah, I, I kind of wish I didn't know. <laughs> it's one of those questions where it's like, man, wait, did I go into the, what did I do wrong? Could it be that it is the domain that dictates that kind of range? I would think there range depends on the domain they are with as well. The other really high paid, like over a million was in supply chain. So definitely the highest paid average wise that I know, hedge funds, fintech, but there are some unicorns lurking around out there. And I don't even know like Facebook, Google, I, I have no idea. There's probably some people that are stratospheric in those companies, but no, I've, I saw one in a supply chain company. Um, I don't know if I can say the companies. Yeah. There was one that was a manufacturing supply chain company where there was an individual over well over seven figures. Um, I have another question. Um, so when it comes to, um, this is very off topic. I found that very interesting though, but it made me think about um, trying to like discern the culture of a company Um like through the job description and stuff. So I kind of just want to throw out the question there, like from um, from a job description or maybe also in an interview or something like that, what are like the things that help you read between the lines to be like, ah, oh, that's what kind of company this is like, or this company, maybe, you know, maybe an easy place to start is to talk about the red flags. But I guess I also kind of am curious about like the white flags too, like the things that you see that you're like, oh, this is a very good company. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on that? So is your question more on how do we find that or from yeah, just job description? If, yeah, like say that you're reading a job description. What are the red flags or the white flags of, that help you know, like, this is a good company, this is a bad company? Well, in case of uh, data scientist positions that I've seen, a red flag pr pretty much would be to ask for a wide range of skill sets that you cannot literally have one person have. That's a, that kind of, to me, it says that they don't really know what they want and they're just going to dump IT versus science versus engineering, pretty much everything on you. So I, I steer away from any kind of job searches and that's what I advise other, other students in my university as well. Um, that's one of the big red flag for me that I commonly tell others. The uh, When you say white flag, what, what do you mean? How do you define a white flag? Uh, I guess just 
any way that you want, but generally just when you're reading a job description and you go, ah, I can tell that this is a, you know, a company of a certain way and it's a really good company. They have a great culture or something like that. Like, um, so for me, I'm from from the healthcare domain. So whenever I see positions that say, okay, they are using um, cloud technologies, that kind of um, stuff, it gives me an idea of their internal culture. Healthcare is a pretty niche culture. Um, essentially, it's not very easy for someone to adopt cloud technologies. So that gives me an idea that how open-minded they are. That, that's my synonymous thing. So depending on which domain you are in, something like that could kind of relate to what you are looking for as white flag. Yeah, uh, that, that's pretty much what I wanted to say. That's really interesting. Um, Mark, go ahead. Um, so there, there's like two sides. There's the technical culture and then there's like the people culture. Um, for technical culture, that's kind of like my first pass. And I always ask kind of three main questions that really gets to like, do they know what they're talking about? Like, will this will this be setting me up for success or failure? Um, sometimes a recruiter knows, sometimes they don't, but find the person who can't answer this is um, what type of data are they working with and the tech stack they have? Um, the second thing is, you know, how, how are they using this data today? And then the third question I asked is, you know, with, with this position, how are they trying to use this data in the future? Um, those three questions really, is able to help me kind of sift out who knows what they're talking about versus who isn't. So for example, when I was trying to get my first data science role, um, this, this company was, is a pretty large company. They're excited. They're like, Mark, we want you as a data engineer. And I asked those three questions. And I found out they actually just wanted me to essentially merge all their Excel files into one giant Excel file. And I instantly knew, I said, I cannot work for you. I'm sorry. Like I had to end this interview. Um, but other companies where they can be very specific or like, you know, this is our tech stack. Um, this is the data we use, you know, um, we're, we're cloud-based. You know, we're, we're not big data, so we're not going to be using like Spark or something. They can like actually specifically answer that. Like they know what they're doing. But I really like the third question of like, what do you see this role kind of transforming that process? Because it's not just a like, oh, we should just hire data scientists. They're being very intentional, like why they want my role. Um, so those are the kind of key things I look for. And then for the people side, um, I feel like you can't pick that up from... Um, from a job description. So I normally just have to do research. So I'll go look up blog posts. Um, I will go look up um, Glassdoor, which will be very extreme views. Um, if possible, I try to interview people who used to work there, but are no longer there. Um, and then like during the interview, you know, you can ask questions of like, hey, you know, how, how does prioritization work within your company? Specifically, who's going to be your direct manager? You know, hey, we have competing competing deadlines, what's your process for choosing, you know, which is the right one? Um, I've had managers where like, we do them both and we just grind. <laughs> um, I have my current managers, like we prioritize and cut the one that's not important. Um, so depending on what you, which one you prefer, that can help kind of uh, distill kind of like what that culture culture is like. So that's, that's kind of the strategies I currently use. That's really great advice. Also, Mark's boss um, once gave me the advice that in the interview, you can tell if they care about like how you are as a person and how you think um, if they conduct the interview in a way where they're trying to like assess like, yeah, like how you think and stuff instead of it being a pop quiz. And uh, I really liked that advice, not to answer my own question, but um, anybody else have any like strategies they use when you're trying to like assess how good a company is. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? What I find in job descriptions is like culture comes through and you know, where other people have got kind of brought up, you should brought up the, the crazy job description. When you look at a job description and you go, okay, you're insane. And there are a lot of those job descriptions where you'll look at it and you go, how am I still reading this two pages in? There's no way this is a team, not a person or maybe a small division of an army. And so, you know, there are those obvious ones where you look at the job description and you go, you're nuts. But then there are some subtle ones, too, where they say that, you know, we want you to be a self-starter. We want you to be independent, but we want you to take feedback. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. OK, so you're not going to tell me what I need to know to do my job. But when I mess up, you're going to tell me, OK, I got you. That's OK. Got it. And sometimes... You know, in the job description, the the manager will say the the quiet thing out loud by accident. And that's there's a whole lot of, you know, you got to read between the lines in the job description and go, wait, those two things don't make sense. 
And especially when I see IT type responsibilities in the job, we'll start talking about monitoring environments. I'm going, oh, okay. Red flag number one, monitoring environments. Okay, if that's by itself, I'm all right. Uh, managing, whoa, wait, you want me to also, okay. So now I'm managing environments, not mine, but env- okay. So I'm an IT admin now. Oh, and you want me to know Linux really, really well. And you want me to networking, you know, there's, there's kind of these and they'll stick them in different spots. Like they think you're not going to notice or something that you, you know, you'll get worn down by the size of it, but it's those types of things where if you dissect the job description, you start finding inconsistencies where you just say, what, what do you, wait a minute. Doesn't make any sense. Like tech stack sometimes. You'll look at a tech stack and go, wait, what? Why would you put those two tech stacks together? That doesn't make any sense. Those two tools are either redundant or they don't work well together. And you start finding out that that's a consulting house where they're just going to be feeding you projects, could be from eight different domains, four different clients. You know, and you start looking for inconsistencies that indicate. You're set up to fail or you're going to be given little direction. And in interviews, yeah, it's the gotcha questions. You know, those questions where they're not trying to tell if you can do the job. They're trying to tell if you can do like the best data scientist on earth job. You start getting questions where they're not assessing, are you capable of doing this role? But it's more like, are you capable of doing eight different versions of this role that might come up because we don't really know what we need you to do? And so there's, it's stuff like that, where you start hearing dysfunction in their interview process. And especially if you're in the interview and you get somebody that's asking you a stupid question, like get up. I know that's not an, I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I had somebody, I was 15 years into my career, asked me for my GPA. I just got up. I was like, no, I, I, yeah, cat, not fed, um, double parked. Uh, how do I get out of here? Um, <laughs> you know, there's, just just end the, end the interview. It's not going to get better. Um, one thing I would like to add is also from the job description, if they mention like a vacation policy, that's a good thing to give you an idea about the culture as well. That's something I tell the students as well to look out for, to know about the company culture, just from the job description. But definitely screening that. And then when you actually interview with them, the first level, that should give you a little bit more idea if you would be a good fit. Unlimited PTO is a trap. <laughs> like, wait, I've had it for so many years. And I never took a vacation. I think also um, flexible working policies or conditions also is an interesting one, particularly you know, after the last 18 months. If they advertise a position saying flexible working possible, 100% remote. Is that going to be their policy in six to 12 months time when the uh, you know the, the pandemic situation is a lot more stable? Are they going to say, you know, things have changed now. You need, you need to be located in the office, you know, 50% of the time, 100% of the time. So that's a, that's a key one to check also. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about um, what the longer term impacts of culture will be from the pandemic versus what will end up being sort of short term. Um, does anybody else have any Thoughts on this or any last questions? I like to ask about uh, how do they handle mistakes like done by other people? How do they correct those? Um, what happens when somebody tried something and then it failed? How do they learn from it and things like that? Just kind of see whether they're looking for a unicorn, like somebody who will come in and expecting to get things right at first try. So I typically hear, uh, uh, we, 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 uh, uh, so with regards to that answer, that gives you a feel for, you know, the overall, I guess I want to say culture since we've been mentioning culture in terms of how do, how does this company accept, you know, people who make mistakes and how do they learn from them? Uh, is there a, a, a framework to, to, to learn from these mistakes and move forward? Uh, with the overall goal. Um, and, and, and I fully agree. There are some things that you have to ask during the interview to kind of uh, mask any potential red flags that a company may have. So your questions need definitely need to be um, uh, strategic to make sure that uh, they are properly surfaced. Sometimes they might say, oh, I want you to work on this project. Simple question as, you know, is this new? What, what is the source of this need for this project? And then you might hear things like we've been working at it for X amount of months or years and things like that. To, to me, this is a red flag kind of thing. It's like, okay, how come you guys still haven't figured it out yet kind of thing? So um, I think that's why it's key to really think about the questions that you're about to ask 
so you can kind of um, unmask any red flags. Because the description of a, a, a position uh, can give you the red flags, then in this case, that makes your life easier. You can move on. But when you have an, uh, uh, even if you have a killer description of a position, you should have, uh, you should ask uh, critical questions to to really uh, surface any potential red flags so you can make a, a decision. Well, thanks for all of that advice, everybody. Um, and if there's no other questions, um, I think that we'll just end here for the day. It was so fun hanging out, having such a small group. I think that at its peak, there were only 11 people here. So um, yeah, like real intimate, just having a nice chat with friends. Thanks so much for showing up, everybody. I was really nervous that I was going to sit here and just be like, hey, hi, hello, Vivian. How are you today, Vivian? I'm good, Vivian. How are you, Vivian? Um, and then I was going to let Harpreet down. So thank you for showing up. Thanks for talking. Um, I really enjoyed this discussion. Um, and I hope that you all have a good weekend. And as Harpreet would say, you get one life on this planet. And so go live it. And uh, live your best life and do what makes you happy. Okay. Well, Vivian, you may think you don't have the radio voice, but you did an awesome job. So thank you for hosting <laughs> us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. See you guys later. Thank you. Have a good one, guys.